You know, when uh, we all fill the stadium, you can take a seat, fill the stadium of eternity, whoever gets there first, can you ask that we could all have seats together? You know, singing God's glory and his praise like that far out. Imagine just that high calling that we have for eternity to be worshipping the Lord Jesus as we stand face to face with him. And it would be no greater pleasure of mine than to be able to do that. And this is like practice. You know, each week we practice what eternity will be like in all that we do. Welcoming one another, enjoying each other's company being the newly created or becoming the newly created people that God has called us to be, singing of his wonder and his praise. And I hope we all live in a similar town or suburb in eternity because it'd be cool to keep seeing your faces forever and ever. You may not feel the same way about me, (laughs) but it'd be called the Shire. Too good. What, what did they say? Something I remember pay phones or something like that. It was always just a local call if you lived in the Shire. Um, something like this. Oh, Lord, save us. Redeem us, especially those of us who live in the Shire. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, well, we are in Luke chapter 5 today, so if you've got your Bible, um, you can open it. If it's digital, go for it. If it's paper, ruffle it around. Or if you have neither, it will be on the screen. Um, and we're going to dive straight in. Luke 5 uh, verse 27 and it begins like this, after this. Now maybe we'll just stop here. After what? We may ask. You know, this is early on in Dr. Luke's account of Jesus's life, the biography that he has written about Jesus and uh, the after this bit is referring backwards to uh, moments like where Jesus had spent 40 days Um, in the wilderness, in the desert, where he had been tempted by the enemy, where he fasted and where he prayed, where he was um, sticking it to the devil, giving him uppercuts left, right and centers, three-punch combos. The devil was trying to deceive him and lie to him and sow doubt in his mind, but Jesus just kept coming and coming and coming. Uh, And then returning from the desert, the time of preparation, Um, Jesus began his public ministry um, where his very first stop was rejection. He came back and people didn't like what he was on about. He got rejected by his own people. Uh, Luke goes on to record for us that Jesus healed a man with an unclean demon. He healed Simon's mother-in-law of a fever that she was suffering. He healed a man with leprosy. He healed a man who was paralyzed. And from the very beginning, we start to see this picture of Jesus as the great physician. Jesus, the one who is able to um, defy all natural order of things and make them right again, that he was truly the healer. And so he went traveling around Judea, preaching the good news of the kingdom that Jesus was here, that God was here, and with many accompanying signs of God's power at work through him. Along the way, Jesus began onboarding his team of merry men who would go on to join him in his ministry. And we find in the beginning of Luke chapter 5 that Jesus came across a few fishy-smelling characters that he chose to follow him. And they were out fishing, and as um, the best of us in the fishing um, hobby sport, it is a sport, by the way, um, 
<laughs> whatever. Um, they, had a, they had a terrible night on the nets. When we go fishing, we catch nothing. It's called coming home with a donut, like a, a zero, not actually a, a, a donut. That would sometimes be better than coming home uh, with the shame of catching nothing. Or you say, we didn't even turn a reel. And this was um, how these guys had experienced their night of fishing. They didn't catch anything. And Jesus told them to push their boats back out into the deep. And he said, put your nets back down. And they followed Jesus' instruction. And they caught an enormous amount of fish, so much so another boat had to come and help with their catch of fish. And Jesus said to them, or once they had realized that this man was something spectacular, and Jesus said, hey, put everything down and follow me, they did. And he said to them, no longer are you guys going to fish for fish, you guys are going to fish for people. And so when Luke begins his story with after this, it was after Jesus launched into his ministry, it was after Jesus' power had been widely seen by the community, it was after Jesus' purpose being made clear to all around It was after his uncanny ways of working became apparent to the world. It was after seeing his choice not to operate alone and his propensity to choose unlikely folk to follow him in his mission, a thread that we pick up in this very story of Jesus calling Matthew. So after all of this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast at his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, if you're like me, you read that encounter, and it can be quite two-dimensional, quite black and white, perhaps lacking the vivid detail that um, would really bring this alive. Lucky for us, there is a... uh, media organization company called, I don't know what they're called, but they've made a series called The Chosen. Has anyone seen The Chosen before? Um, We're going to bring this, what I have just read in these couple of verses, to life by watching The Chosen. So if you guys could bring the lights down and hit the video, that would be tremendous. What a beautiful depiction of Jesus calling Matthew to follow him. I'm not sure what resonated with you in that or perhaps as you watched that, where you found yourself in that story, perhaps you could position yourself there somewhere. And what resonated for me was to see the eyes of Christ lock onto uh, Matthew's with unhindered love and radical acceptance as a very unexpecting Matthew looked on. It reassured me this week of the friendliness and the warmth of Jesus as he daily walks past the figurative booths of my life and says, Dave, follow me. I mean, that Jesus would stop 
and that he would turn around and that he would engage with Matthew reminds me so vividly that in Christ, we have a God who sees. And on top of that, to hear one of the disciples question Jesus when he called Matthew to follow him, and they said to him, do you even know him? And for Jesus to respond with a reassuring and confident yes, This reassures me that in Christ we have a God who knows us. And sometimes I wonder if God really sees me. Sometimes I wonder if God really knows me. At times I wonder if he sees the situation I'm in. I wonder if he sees my worries. Sometimes I wonder if he sees my frustrations I wonder if he sees the difficult moments that I walk through, if he sees my hopes or my dreams, if he sees the piles of bills to be paid or the state of a bank account, if he sees aches and my pains. I wonder if he knows my mistakes, my dreams, if he knows my needs. I mean, sometimes life can feel like perhaps how Matthew felt in that moment when he saw Jesus enter stage left and for a brief moment he kept walking I wonder if in that moment there was a great deflation of Matthew's heart as he saw his opportunity perhaps to have those longings of his heart come to fruition perhaps you feel like it's just another day going about work like Matthew was seeing those longings of the heart walking by But then Jesus turned around. Jesus called his name. Jesus saw him. Jesus saw his quirks and his flaws. He saw his life choices. He saw his shyness. He saw his awkwardness and all. That vision of Jesus has been enough for me this week. To be reminded that I am seen and that I am known. That despite all of my stuff, Jesus doesn't just keep walking by. He does see me and he does know me. And friend, it might not feel like it right now, but I can reassure you that God sees you and he knows you. David penned it well in Psalm 32 verse 8, says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. Perhaps this simple reminder is why the Holy Spirit nudged you out of bed this morning to be reminded that the loving eye of the Lord is upon you. And that is truth that we can take to the bank. That the loving eye of the Lord is upon you. After Jesus called Levi to follow him, We saw the transition, the scene shift from the hustle and bustle of downtown to the alfresco courtyard of Levi's house. And it's in verse 29 that Luke tells us that Levi made Jesus and the guests a great feast, which I reckon the video that we just saw brought those very brief words of Luke's to life in quite a beautiful way. 
I mean, the betrayal of the feast was so rich in its lightness. I mean, there was so much that was normal and right about that scene. It was full of joy. There was a genuine and palpable sense of community. And part of me thought that maybe these were Australian directors in the way that the banter was so strong around the table. Does anyone like grapes? I hear you like to eat lots of grapes. Dry humour. The atmosphere at the table was imbued with a deep sense of trust and of vulnerability and of friendship that on paper perhaps ought not have been the case. I mean, not to mention the delicious feed that was stretched out across the table. Bread, fresh fruits, olives, although you can have them. I don't like olives. There would have been dips, tzatziki, hummus, wine. No doubt there was grandma's charcuterie board full of Bega cubed cheese and Jat's biscuits, cabanossi. You know, the one that comes in the Tupperware container that Grandma puts down on the picnic blanket? Now, this is a spectacular vision of what one should expect when found at the table with Jesus. Joy and friendship, laughter, connection, kindness, no expense spared, generosity, and warm hospitality. You know, in an age where division and isolation have never been higher, where the culture in our day of us versus them is worsening, where dividing lines and the chasms between people are growing wider, isn't it time we reclaim the table as a place where the presence of Jesus melts away the icy walls of division and difference. In my study this week, I heard one preacher ask this question. What if we learned the way of Jesus and used tables to have meaningful conversations with people rather than argue online? Leonard Sweet, an American professor of theology, noted, if we were to make the table the most sacred piece of furniture in every home and in every church and in every community, our faith would quickly regain its power and our world would quickly become a better place. And what we see happening here at Levi's house is an indication of that and indicative of the very mission that Jesus came to fulfill. And this is no more clearly evident than to look at who was at the table with Jesus. Who was sitting around that meal? Well, very clearly, Luke tells us there was a large company of tax collectors and sinners. Now, the gospel writers throw a different, few different nuances in there and how they describe sinners, but let's begin with Matthew and his Tax collecting friends. I mean, tax collectors were regarded by the Pharisees as religiously unclean because they worked for the Romans. And more than just working for the Roman Empire, they were collaborators with the enemy. 
In doing so, this deemed them as not just an enemy to the nation of Israel and their Jewish community, but a very enemy of God himself, at least in the Jewish eyes. Tax collectors were seen as leeches, sucking the financial lifeblood out of their own people. They were seen as traitors, as renegades, as funders of the oppression of their own people, all for their own personal gain. And for these reasons, they were hated by their fellow Jews. New Testament theologian William Lane notes this, when a Jew entered the customs service, as in as a tax collector or a publican, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session. He was excommunicated from the synagogue and in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended to his entire family. Needless to say, for Christ to associate with, let alone call a tax collector to be one of his disciples would have drawn the ire and the fury of many. And from the Jewish perspective, Jesus was literally eating with people deemed enemies of God, which by the virtue of Jesus' own godness, he was dining with those seen as an enemy of himself. Who does that? Who takes their enemies out for tea? And it wasn't just tax collectors at the table, but other sinners too. Prostitutes, criminals, and others of unsavory reputation. And we can tell from the Pharisees' response to what they saw, at least from their religious perspective, that they were very disapproving of the whole thing. Why do you and your disciples eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees wanted Jesus to behave like a doctor but avoid sick people. For Jesus, that maths just does not add up. Their issue was not the fact that there was a lavish party. From the Jewish perspective, they knew that the kingdom of God involved a party. Their issue was the guest list. How could he be Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and associate himself with all of these dirty, rotten, sinful people? And the, state, the mistake here that the Pharisees made and made quite often was that they had made a distinction between themselves and those at the table. In their eyes, they were clean, and those Jesus was dining with were dirty. In their eyes, they were righteous, and those who were in the company of Jesus were unrighteous. In their eyes, they were holy, and the people sitting around the table with Jesus were so unholy that who they were and what they had done could not even pass by the lips of the Pharisees. They had categorically distinguished themselves as righteous based on their knowledge of the law and the position and the power that they held. But of course, their righteousness was no righteousness at all. It was self 
righteousness. This is what the Pharisees were known for. Their self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, which Jesus was exposing. And right in this encounter, he is challenging their belief that separation creates purity. Their belief that only bad people sin. Their belief that obeying the laws makes them better than everyone else. They assumed that they were good and everyone else was bad. They assumed that they were the in ones and everyone else was the out ones. You know, modern day Pharisees have a similar kind of struggle. I mean, perhaps you won't spend time with people who do certain things or say certain things just because they might make you look bad. Maybe you may be a modern-day Pharisee if you put yourself in the category of good and others in the category of bad. You may be a Pharisee if you deeply wish to have power over others. You may be a Pharisee if your first response is judgment rather than mercy. Pharisees don't need Jesus because they're confident that they're good enough on their own. But the truth of the matter is we are all sinners in need of God's grace and God's forgiveness. We all need Christ, all of us. Paul reminded the church in Rome about this when he wrote, for there is no distinction for all, all of us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so too, all of us are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I mean, it's a helpful image to remember that the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. There's, there's no piece of dirt that's slightly higher for those who are a little bit better. And there is not a trench dug for those who are a little bit worse at the foot of the cross. That all of mankind, all of people, all of us together stand on level ground before the King. I mean, the common need for uncommon grace is what made that meal so spectacular. The common need for uncommon grace. And that is why I love the church of Jesus so much. That we all have a common need of uncommon grace. And the way in which we gather as those who are aware of that. That together we come knowing that we are imperfect. Knowing that we are broken. Knowing that we cannot earn righteousness on our own. But only through what Jesus has done for us in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, and in his infilling of us now. We cannot save ourselves, but only the redeeming, sanctifying, purifying work of Christ among us. And Jesus said in response to the Pharisees in verse 31, Guys, it's not the well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus did not bring together Matthew and his cronies from the tax collecting community. 
He did not invite prostitutes or criminals or other outcasts of town because of what made them different. Jesus' guest list was not an act of first century virtue signaling, but an act of radical and unmerited grace, welcoming all people to his table, full stop. He did not bring them together for what made them different. He brought them together for what they had in common. And that is they were broken, imperfect, sinful people who were seen and known by Jesus and who had no other means to save themselves but by his grace. This is what is so spectacular about Jesus. He calls imperfect people because there are no other kind. I mean, this is a reminder for me, just as it is for you, friends. Never allow self-righteousness to get in the way of the Lord's invitation of you, assuming that you can do this on your own. And friends, never allow self-righteousness to hinder the invitation of others to his table. I can only imagine what would have become of a person who tried to get in the way of the father running down the driveway to his returning prodigal son. I reckon an Old Testament scale smackdown would have befallen such a fool. May we never get in the way of a passionate father waiting nor welcoming home a wandering child. Our call is to build longer tables, not higher fences. This is what excites me about our food pantry idea, God's food pantry idea, about building longer tables that whoever may have need in our community does not have to jump over a fence, through a hoop, run around the block 10 times, prove their worth before they receive something. May we be a church that build long tables, not high fences. Now, this call is not for the faint of heart. I came across this challenge during the week. If you have never been accused of being too gracious, too loving, too forgiving, you may have a theology problem. I'm not sure what we'll do with that accusation of being too gracious or too loving or too forgiving. But I hope we do get that. The table at Matthew's house was full to the brim with sinners. And Jesus, he loved every second of it. He wasn't scared of people. He wasn't scared of their sin. He wasn't trying to hide them or their past. He laughed with them. He told stories with them. He shared a meal with them. No doubt raising a glass in cheers of a delicious glass of red wine, of cheese and bickies. Jesus loved sinners. He loved sinners, especially ones who don't see themselves as Pharisees. Jesus loved these people at the table because they all knew they needed a saviour. 
They knew they couldn't clean up the mess of their lives themselves. Now, the calling of Matthew is one big, welcoming, delicious, joy-inducing, heart-freeing, peace-bringing reminder that the table of Jesus is a table of grace. I mean, the, the, the table that Jesus welcomes us to is a canvas on which he paints the story of his unending radical grace. I mean, Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians 1, 7 to 9. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. We have redemption according to what? Our goodness or our perfection? We have redemption according to our ability to remain pure. We have redemption based on our cleverness. We have redemption based on our ability to try again when we've failed and then try again when we failed again. No, we have redemption through his grace, which he has lavished upon us. Now, the gospel takes root in our heart that knows that perfection, that knows that effort and hard work and good deeds, knows that enough knowledge or enough study or enough money or enough experiences or enough of anything cannot fix the problem of sin. The gospel rather takes root in a repentant heart, in a life that is surrendered to Jesus, a life that turns away from the old ways of being and turns to the becoming of the new creation that is available to us in Jesus Christ. That is where the gospel takes root. In a life that it is surrendered to Jesus, where we admit that we have not got the answers, that I don't know the way forward, that I don't have a solution to the problem of pain in my life. The gospel takes root in a life and in a heart that, as Jesus says, is repentant, that turns toward him, that turns toward the kingdom, that turns toward life, that turns toward the work that God is doing, that turns toward, toward his voice, toward the whisper of him calling us forward. That is where the gospel takes root. I'll invite the band to come back up. We're going to take communion together in a moment. And Andrew's going to lead us in that. Romans 5.8. Let's stand together. Romans 5.8. I consider my position and my welcome at the table and I am just overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus. Paul writes, For when we were still weak, which at times I'm still weak, and quite often I'm weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. And in him, Paul writes to the Ephesians, you and me who were once far off have been brought near, have been invited to the table, have been welcomed into the family, have been invited into the presence of the Lord by the blood of Christ. You know, as we consider this calling of Matthew, like Matthew, we are seen by God. And like Matthew, we are known by God. Like Matthew, by His mercy, we are found and we have a home. And like Matthew, in spite of or perhaps because of his imperfections, he was chosen to follow Jesus. And the same with us. And like Matthew, by grace, and by grace alone, you and I are welcome at the Lord's table. Thank you, Andrew. First of all, I want to say welcome, welcome, welcome. I hope that's how you feel every Sunday when you come into church, especially today. And also how you feel as you gather together for this special time that we call communion. When the disciples were sent out ahead to prepare the Last Supper in the upper room, they were first welcomed by the person who owned that space, a stranger. And they were given freedom to do as they were instructed by Jesus. I'm sure that when Jesus and the other disciples arrived, those who came before and prepared the place welcomed them warmly also. At that point, I think Jesus would have taken over as host. And I believe that he would have been quite welcoming to all who sat around that table. He was welcoming, he was inclusive of all, even the one he knew would betray him. There was room and there was love enough for everyone at the table. Today, that's still the same. Today, we are the disciples. Today, we do the things that we have been instructed to do. Today, we partake of this feast of love and remembrance together this feast that we call communion. The word communion denotes the idea of fellowship or sharing. It gives us an understanding that we are actually partaking of the Lord's Supper. We're doing so in fellowship with the Lord himself. We're sharing in his sacrifice of his body and blood as he gave himself to die on the cross. The emblems, simple as they are, that are there, remind us of how far he was willing to go to welcome us into eternal fellowship with him. Question for you. How much does God love us? This much.
Would you all just please come forward and take some of the bread and the cup? And we'll partake together as a faith family in just a moment. And I'll just ask that if you want to, if you're able to, to take your cup and your bread and just stand around the table together. But if that's not something that you're comfortable to do, then seats are still there. But please come forward now and take those emblems, the bread and the cup. place at the table for you all. Eat the bread, symbol of Christ's body given for you. Drink also the cup, his blood that was shed for the remission of sin once for all. it for myself but for each of you to know that it is very personal dear lord jesus i come to you and remember all that you have done for me on the cross thank you for loving me so much you gave up heaven for me thank you for allowing your body to be broken so mine might be made whole and as i partake of these emblems i receive your love your forgiveness and your welcome and i respond in worship and thanksgiving amen if you want to stay where you are and uh, just join in this last opportunity that we have this morning to sing a song and respond we have received we have remembered now is our opportunity to respond in worship